For many of my guests, I spend a bit of time recording short clips on the actuarial code of conduct before we record the interview. I'm going to be releasing a compilation of these, along with a few special guests, for subscribers to my professionalism channel. As a teaser, here's a clip with Tyler Cowen, economist, blogger at marginalrevolution.com, and New York Times bestselling author. After talking about the precepts, Tyler turns the tables on me, starting an impromptu Conversations with Tyler show, and we go on a whirlwind tour of the history of insurance and get at what regulation exactly does to protect actuaries and insurers from competition. We end with a quick discussion of fronting arrangements, and I missed an opportunity to talk about all the ways that fronting actually enables this kind of extra competition, but that will just have to be for another show. Actuaries should head over to notunreasonable.com to sign up for professionalism continuing education credits. Hello, this is Tyler Cowan. Precept 5. An actuary who issues an actuarial communication shall, as appropriate, identify the principles for whom the actuarial communication is issued and describe the capacity in which the actuary serves. Any reaction to that? I don't understand it. It seems general enough. It's probably true. Uh, But legally, what counts as an actuarial communication, I don't understand. And uh, to describe the capacity in which the actuary serves, again, it sounds trivially appropriate, but what it means in practice, uh, I, as an economist, am not qualified to say. Well, I'll give you a bit of insight on that. There's a fear overall, and it's an implicit fear, we don't actually talk about it, of people misappropriating an actuarial work product. And so the thing with any kind of, I think, deep analysis is that it's subtle and its intended purpose is really important for right. actually the content of the communication. And they're undefined, you're right, and they don't really tend to define it very often. Sometimes people define actuarial work product as anything an actuary does. And you kind of have to define it a little bit broadly because of the possibility for misuse. So you email something out, right? Right. And it says, here's what my conclusion is. And if you're not an actuary, you might not understand it. You might take it and say, that supports my purpose and send it on to somebody else and screw somebody <laughs> or, or do something, maybe not nefarious, but maybe a little bit misleading or misleading enough that the original actuary wouldn't want you to do that. And would you, would see, this is not an intended purpose. And I didn't want you to be able to, I didn't want to empower you in this way. Uh, I wanted to empower you in these specific ways. And so we have to be very careful about defining the, the 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 scope of any kind of work that we do because we are dealing with people who need what we do, so we're empowered in a certain way, but don't understand what we do. The real lesson to me is how much background context can be behind an apparently simple statement. Absolutely. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And so one of the things that fascinates me about these, I think that the precepts are underappreciated. And I think people tend, you have to read them, or every year, every actuary has to spend three hours doing professionalism development. So reviewing, one of the things that we have to do, we either go to talks or seminars, or we have to sit down and read the precepts of the Code of Conduct in three 50-minute private sessions, and then attest that you did it. And what actually is an actuary, legally speaking, is defined at the state level by a licensing process? No. Or is it by some other? Great question. So it's not. So it's a private organization. Okay. It's endorsed by state regulators for signing off on... So it's a natural monopoly somewhat, like a credit rating agency or... I would say it probably is. I don't know that there's any kind of legislative... So here's one of the things about insurance which is interesting, is that it's state regulated. And so there's this herd of cats being all 50 states. It's not, right. There's no federal kind of charter of any sort. Now, actuaries are... I'm, I'm not gonna get, I might get this wrong. I, th- I think it's it's not mandated centrally, but I think that there's this 
coordinating process for state regulators to collectively say actuaries are the ones who can sign off on the final statement, financial statements of an insurance company. Insurance is opaque. It takes a long time for the costs to, to be realized. And so you have to have somebody say, this insurance could be solvent because it's not obvious that they're solvent at any sure. kind of given point in time. And so the actuaries have that power to be able to sign off on the financial statements. So there's, there's an arrangement there, but it's not, you don't have to go to university to be an actuary. It's, a, it's like a trade. But let's say I, Tyler Cowen, came along and set up the actuary certification company in New York State. Yep. And I decided, oh, these seven people, they're actuaries. How far could I get with that? Is there a legal problem or just everyone would ignore me? I don't know. I think everyone would ignore you. You would. Well, let's say I pick seven really good people. You're one of them. Sure. And then next year, you know, I pick another 20. And five years from now, I'm picking the best people, and I'm doing slightly better than the supposed natural monopoly. Yeah. Is that a contestable market, or do I just have no chance there? I think you have no chance. And But the thing is, I'm not totally sure on what the mechanism for the failure is going to be. I think that I know that there you have to attest to the fact that you're an actuary when you sign off on financial statements. That information comes from the actuarial body, who, who who actually write, you know, who they write the exams, or so they they build the exams that we have to pass to become certified as an actuary. I don't know where the mechanism is for the states to actually require that designation, or, or where, where it's embodied in legislation anywhere. I think it probably is. And what about cross-border certification? Say I'm the best actuary in Canada, yeah. and I want to do something in the United States. Is there sort of free trade in that service, or am I out of luck? No, you're out of luck. Well, in Canada... Is there any country where there's... Cr- Canada the is European actually, Union? So Canada. in Canada, there happens to be um, pretty close to one, though there's one exam that's different between the Canadian actuaries and U.S. actuaries. If you take... It's like the accountants. So accountants, you have to actually have a recertification process to be an accountant in the United States if you're one in Canada. Okay. And so different countries have certain amounts of overlap between their educational qualifications. Canada is one that's super, super close. The U.K. is not as much. In some countries, you can apply for an equivalence and you can get your credential converted. And sometimes that takes more work or less work. I don't know that anybody has a real total clean shot in. I think anywhere you have to go, there's some local knowledge you have to accumulate. Usually is embodied in an exam process or an, or an application for an exemption from that. How about within the European Union? Uh, I don't know. I think the UK is separate from the EU. Right. I think the EU might be one. I'm not so sure on that. But if I'm a Croatian actuary, I would be surprised if I could just show up in Germany and practice without hindrance. I don't know, as a matter of fact. Yeah. That seems to me one of those service areas where the EU is not really close to a free trade zone, at least not yet. Well, there's another layer of complexity there because insurance is a, has a, there's a, really, there's a long history of insurance being there's conflict between whether it's a local or a national service. So you can think state regulation, right? Shouldn't this be interstate commerce? You think it would be. A lot of other financial services are. And sure. it's, it's not. And so there's this whole, and it's a debate that kind of there's, it goes back and forth a little bit in the history of the regulation of insurance. But also just in the practice of the business as it is today, it's a very, very local business. And, you know, the, what's amazing about insurance is that you're an insurance agent in some small town. There are like, there's like 3,000 insurance companies in the United States compared to like how many smartphone makers? Right. I mean, this is a business which is not aggregated because of the local relationships that people have, you know, and I think this is this is to do with what I, I like to think of insurance as a moral economy, which is like it's all really uncertain. We're not sure what's going to happen. So we're going to have to trust each other a little bit here. And as a result, you have to trust people, you know, and you like right. the idea of having a local. That's not something that I would choose myself. I mean, with the big guys like well, many other people. But if you're living in a small town, I think you gain comfort from the fact you have a local agent and a local company that's actually issuing your insurance policy. And you like that. And so there's this real lo- you know, localization kind of idea that's an in insurance. And so back to the EU example, it would also surprise me if you're a Croatian actuary, go to German insurance companies, because the Germans would be like, we want the guys we know. Right. But say I'm a nationwide company. Maybe I'm chartered in Delaware, but I have branches in all 50 states. And I go to the Supreme Court and I say, I don't want to be 
covered by any state regulator. I want to be regulated by only the federal government. What would they say to me? They don't have. I mean, I think the federal government doesn't have the legislative authority. The way, actually, well, but the court could could rule. I, yeah. I'm not saying they would, but what's their argument for not doing so? So I, I think right now there is actually a bit of legislative precedent or legislative um, structure for this, where the federal government is allowed to regulate insurance where there is no state regulation. So there was an act that was passed in the 30s, which correct, which sort of clarified all of this. And so, what act is that? Uh, I think it's called McCarran. McCarran, yeah, yeah. And pretty important moment, because at that point, there was a Supreme Court ruling, actually, in the 1920s that flipped from state to federal regulation. Mm-hmm. Supreme Court said, actually, the precedent was wrong. This is really interstate commerce. It should be federal. And then the whole thing blew up. And they gave them, like, they think they gave them five years to figure it out. And they said, we're going we're gonna to sort of set a ticker on this ruling. And then they, McCarran-Ferguson passed and, and you know, rewrote the rule book. And so federal regulation can exist where a state regulation is not. So state regulation is enshrined in a federal act. But if, in, some, in some lines of business are federally regulated right now. You know, there is a, there's always this movement afoot, and Dodd Frank at one point had a bit of a federal regulation of insurance conversion as a part of it, and it, I don't I don't I think to some degree it did make it through, and some degree it didn't. So there's always a tension there. So that battle is happening all the time, actually. Right. And and you know, I'm mean, not I'm not aware of the you know kind of the blow by blow analysis of it, but it's not working. It's staying state. But you mentioned trust. So let's say I'm in mostly a high trust country, but maybe a low trust state or province. Sure. And I decide I want to do my insurance through Singapore because I trust them more than my local people. Mm-hmm. Does that ever happen? Is that the wave of the future? Or it really is about geographic distance? It's, you, your, your insurance policy is, is, is you aren't allowed to have one in the United States if it's not a federal, not, a, not, a, not federally, if it's not a, a regulated entity in the United States now. But they could have a shell of some kind in the U.S., but the actual business is done in Singapore. And I get on a plane to Singapore, I meet them, I shake their hand, I say, oh, I trust Singaporeans, this is what I want to do. Sure. So that can happen. And that happens in, actually, me and my day job do organize such arrangements periodically. But where it falls down, it's not necessarily on a preference. It falls down because of the economics or the finance. Financial arrangement is just not profitable. Because the margins are too thin in insurance companies, and you get to pay another mouth in the chain. This doesn't make you don't make any money. Mm-hmm. So you can do it, but you won't make any money doing it. If you wanted to pay more for it as a consumer, you could probably organize that. And you say, yeah, well, I'm going to be paying 20% more for my insurance premium. And if you wanted to do that, I could organize it for you tomorrow an insurance policy through a federal, through a shell front company, front companies in the United States with the financial backing of somebody in Singapore. It does happen. Can we put all this into my podcast too? Absolutely. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> um, okay. So that's the warm up. Holy cow. That up. <laughs> 